Yeah, real people, real stories, this is what we know well Yeah, this is our truth today with Farron DeBell Time to get it started quick, not just here for gossiping Everything from entertainment, even talking politics This for everybody, at the gym or working steady For your sister, brother, rabbi, even for your granny Our truth today, trust, you don't wanna miss it Real people, real stories, come through and take a listen Yeah, follow on IG at our truth today Today on our truth today Today with Baron DeBell, we're talking about police accountability and social justice movements like Black Lives Matter. Be aware that this is an uncensored edition and there will be occasions of profanity that are not beeped. There is a censored version available on your favorite podcast app. Just look for the version marked clean. NWA made famous the phrase F the police. While the F meant one thing for NWA, for others, the F stands for fix the police. Let's listen to some of the lyrics from the original. Then, straight up, Baron talks with Sonia Lewis of Black Lives Matter. Fuck the police coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it bad because I'm brown. Police think they have the authority to kill a minority. Fucking with me because I'm a teenager with a little bit of gold and a pager. Searching my car, looking for the product. Thinking every nigga is selling narcotics. But don't let it be a black and a white one because they'll slam you down to the police showing out for the white cop you just heard a mashup of f the police a classic from nwa that describes the interactions between many black and brown people and the police in u.s cities you're listening to our truth today and i'm your host baron debell i'm joined today by activist and educator and the co-lead of black lives matter sacramento sonia lewis welcome sonia thank you so much i'm so happy to be here glad to have you Can you tell us a bit about your work with Black Lives Matter? We're going to talk about Stefan Clark, but tell us generally how you started with Black Lives Matter and what you're focused on now. So I've been a chapter member and lead with Sacramento Black Lives Matter chapter for approximately three and a half years. It was a natural fit from work that I was already doing in the community when it comes to social justice. So showing up for experiences that were taking place all over this country, even if it wasn't a local issue or a local person that was being affected, it still was the norm of recognizing what police brutality looked like in this country. And so it was a natural extension for me and this work. I'm an old school kind of activist. I was on the Bay Bridge in 1992 after the Rodney King verdict came down. So one of those college students way back in the day who was activating my activism 20 plus years ago. And so my work now with Black Lives Matter Sacramento just for me was a a natural extension. And we have taken on a lot of the challenging policies that have kind of crippled the historic implicit biases that continue to play out in law enforcement agencies across this country. I talk a lot about black women who seem to stand up for communities that don't explicitly include themselves. What is it about you and other black women that makes you want to support us? And and it's very indicative in this movement that black women are very much standing up and being the loudest. I would say for me personally, and I can't speak for other black women, I'm the mother of six black boys on any any given day of the week, any of them could be compromised and taken advantage of from the system that we live in. I've been married to the same black man for 20 plus years. My daddy is black, my uncles and cousins and things are, are black. And so standing up for black men just comes natural. 
I think that women in particular, we may, because of our gender, get a pass. But we are also noticing in this time that even Black women have been the targets of oppression and targeting from law enforcement across this country. So I, I call myself, I, I, I relate myself to um, a Sandra Bland because on any given day, I can have an attitude and not feel like answering the question that an officer seems to be the appropriate, respectful way. Well, props for that. And also, it's kind of sad you have to feel that way. Right. Let's clear up some information about Black Lives Matter. First, what's the answer to those who say we should be talking about all lives? You know, it, it would be nice to talk about all lives, but until Black Lives Matter, we can't say all lives. There is data that's glaring, not just when you're talking about, you know, police um, accountability or lack thereof. When you're talking about school systems, when you're talking about medical genocide, when you're talking about communities that are being gentrified. Black lives have not mattered. They have been the secondary thought to, sometimes the third and fourth thought to, people who are planning for any movement or any system in our country. So we as people, everyone, rely on certain systems that we just can't get around. In order to have a job, you probably have to go into a bank to cash a check. probably have to go into a grocery store to buy your groceries. You know, when you go for medical treatment, have to go into a hospital. All of these systems were built and designed, not with black folks in mind. And so I I challenge people to think about, you know, a Serena Williams who nearly died after she gave birth because she was a black woman, not because she was rich, but as a black woman, they saw her skin first. And and that's the norm in this, this country. So we can't say all until we include black. Well, I'm glad to have you on the show. We've covered some touchy topics from transracial adoptions to misogyny in business to white women voters, but today's topic muddies the ideology lines. When we talk about police accountability, it's not a liberal or conservative issue. While there's a vocal minority, I'd say Americans on balance have and continue to support police unquestionably. Would you agree with that assessment? I would very much agree with it. You know, people challenge me all the time when I show up at City Hall, Board of Supervisors meeting, even the state capitol, and say, if someone were breaking into your home, are you going to call the police? In my rational mind, that sounds like the answer, but the data and statistics says that the police are information gatherers. They are not problem solvers. So the likelihood of me particularly relying on the police to solve a problem is slim to none. And I understand that we have been conditioned to believe that the police are coming to save the day. The truth of the matter is they they typically don't. I would ask people to check that allegiance to or that support of law enforcement. I am very much an abolitionist in the sense that we need to defund or take our monies away from law enforcement agencies and put them into programs and systems that will better serve our communities. Your state, California, is one of three states that specifically shields police officers and their records from public scrutiny. Their records and records of complaints are not subject to the California Public Records Act, according to CalMatters. Let's look at some statistics from California that are somewhat representative of the country. In 2017, two officers were shot to death in California. Six others died while working from things like heart attacks and vehicle crashes. Now, on the flip side, California officers killed more than 150 people alone in 2017. That's police killing four times as many people in California as were killed by police in France, England, Germany, and Australia combined. 
no industrialized nation has a higher cop kill rate than America. The only countries that beat us on raw numbers of cop kills are Venezuela, Philippines, and Brazil. What is it about American cops that turns them into killers? Ooh, that's such a loaded question. I, I think that it really heavily is in line with the militarization of our police. I'm, I'm a history teacher by profession. I have a degree in history and have studied systems throughout our country's existence. But one of the things that we have to realize when we talk about the police is its origins. They were slave patrol. They were overseers. Black folks were not citizens. We were property. And so when we talk about this mentality of how are they killers, I think that they're trained to be killers. I think the instinction, and, and that's one of the things that we are fighting here in California, is that it's not that we need to throw money at certain programs and, and pay off all of these lawsuits after um, an officer murders a loved one. Right. It's a matter of going back to the basics of training. It's, it's inevitable that we get to a place where the shift in ideology takes place. On a brighter note, California just passed a law that law enforcement records will be available. And here in Sacramento in particular, our two largest agencies, Sacramento Sheriff's Department and the Sacramento Police Department, there are current lawsuits against them because they've been very defiant in this new law that went into effect already. Um, but they have to now make the records of their officers that have complaints against them um, open to the public. Oh, well, congratulations. Yeah. We've seen and heard the many, many videos of officers saying, stop resisting, or he's got a gun, and then shooting, and later saying they feared for their lives. I know you're not a psychologist, but any thoughts on the mindset of a person who goes into a career that exposes them to violence every day and is also fearful of things like hairbrushes and right. cell phones? I would say that that is a part of their training. They have been con conditioned to see certain people as targets. We have seen all across this country here in California, Northern California, to be exact, less than a year ago in the Roseville area, um, which is a predominantly white neighborhood, um, white man, mid-40s, with a weapon, and officers are able to take him into custody um, without fear. Right. But young men like Stefan Clark can be in their backyards with cell phones in their hands or hairbrushes or Skittles and um, soda pops in their hands and there's this fear. So I think that that's a misnomer. I think that it's part of their training that we know who our targets are based on the history of who we are as an agency. We know that we are looking for people who we deem more criminal and the fear aspect is an excuse to get ourselves off the hook. In Illinois, there was a case I was covering of a teenager who was fleeing after having been attacked in a fight at school. He, his friend was bleeding, and he checked on him in a nearby yard. The yard happened to belong to an off-duty white cop. The cop told him, I could kill you, repeatedly, told him he was trespassing. And the officer's wife came out, and well, I guess it was his fiance, saying, you picked the wrong yard. Wow. After which the officer again told the boy he could shoot him for trespassing. Let's take a listen, and we're not going to censor this portion of the show, so if you have sensitive ears, you may want to skip ahead. Why? I'm going to tell your friend to get back here. Hey, right bro. Why is you hitting me? Let him go, dude. Come back here right now with your phone. Uh, what? Tell your friend to come back here right now. What? Bro, bro, we can just forget all about this and run, bro. Who is? Hey, bro, let him go. and we. in my fucking property. You don't understand that? Why? Let me go. No, you we'll leave. Property. I'm going to fucking kill you. Stop. 
We gotta leave, bro. Get your friend to come here right now. Turn the way. Leave. No, I'm not. Turn the way. You stay put. No. I cannot. You came to the wrong house. I didn't mean to. Get your phone off. Okay, well, who's who this guy coming into my yard? He's going to my friend. Okay. We just, yeah, I just got my ass. Out what's going on? Are you guys are acting stupid. I'm not, I'm not involved in it. Okay, well, tell so. your friend what to sit over here. I'm not involved in it. I don't give a fuck who is. You no. understand that? Why are you doing this to me then? Right. So your friend's being a fucking idiot. No, why you gotta do this to me? Cause tell your friend to come over here then. Why are you telling him? You, you gotta let him go if you want. No, you're not. I'm not. I'm, I'm not. Waiting. You're, you're waiting trespassing right in my fucking yard. You understand? The what? How? You gotta shoot us? How? You're trespassing in my fucking yard. My friend. You, we weren't trespassing. You, we don't. Do you we can that? just. Why are you doing this to me? Cause you're trespassing. We're not trespassing. He just walked in here. We can leave, bro. You're not. We didn't trespass. We didn't trespass, y'all. What do we do? Bro, you don't understand. We just. So we don't have video from the entire interaction, but the cop says, who's this guy coming into my yard? Doesn't sound like he's investigating a crime. Yet a day later, the official report says the officer was investigating the melee at the school and detained the kids for that purpose. Clearly, that wasn't the case. In his case, the county sheriff's department did an independent investigation and exonerated him, no surprise, but an internal investigation cited him for several problems, including changing his statement about why he detained the teen. First, he said the boy attempted to hit him. When asked later, he said he thought the boy may have had a gun that he later found was a cell phone. This officer, William Mason, was suspended for 25 days without pay in order to attend retraining on de-escalation techniques, arrest, search, and seizure, and use of force, and the city did settle with his family for $70,000. Thoughts on cases like that? I always, as a mother, am thinking about my boys and the humanity I am trying to impart to them to always be cognizant and aware and checking on classmates, their surroundings, and just people in general. And so I, I one, wanted to commend the young man for be having the courage to check on his friend. But at the same time, we have to be aware of and, and my husband and I have these conversations all the time of our boys not being as streetwise as we were growing up. Because I would have probably known growing up certain yards not to go into. You know, my dad grew up in the South and his neighbor, he was very vocal about don't come on my yard because I will kill any black person that comes in, in the vicinity of my area. And so it's not surprising. What is something that I think that people need to take a, a huge look at is whether or not law enforcement in, in general gets away with changing narratives to fit their, the circumstance that is in front of us. And, and that's one thing that I will say our chapter, Black Lives Matter Sacramento, now Sacramento for Black Lives, what we work really hard at is that narrative. Being on the scene when an incident originally takes place having conversations with the neighbors, having conversations with the victims so that we can get their story out before the police is able to tell their story. Because nine times out of 10, the story is going to change at least three to five times before the story is corrected by the, the local law enforcement agency. And we see this across the nation time and time again. In the Stephon Clark case, they came out with a narrative, but because we had people on the ground, we were able to get with media and put out what the people on the inside of that home had experienced 
prior to what the law enforcement had put out. And so that's where it's important for communities to say, hey, we are looking out for each other so that the police can't manipulate and take advantage of and then pay us off in the end. Yeah, I saw some testimony from you last year where you testified before the Sacramento City Council about similar actions by the police narrating or explaining things in ways that seemed counterfactual. What happened in that situation? You know, so we're fighting them right now because a year, two years ago, we had an incident where a man suffering from a mental health crisis was walking down the block. A person said they saw him with a knife. They didn't find the knife out, but by the time the Sacramento Police Department showed up at the scene, you had two very high adrenaline rush, testosterone driven men show up on the scene who were willing to run him over with their police vehicles. They ended up shooting him, shooting him, like riddling his body where his legs were falling off of his body. And we were able to get the city to pass a new ordinance that made it law within 30 days of any police involved shooting or a community complaint against an officer that all dash cam and body cam video would be accessible. Over the last year of that being their new policy, Sacramento Police Department has now began to narrate the audio of those videos. And we're calling for no narration. We don't want to see captions on it. And so we're hoping in this next series of elections with ordinances being pushed forward to the city that they will change the law to include that video just be presented to the public as is with no narration. Do the police have an argument against that? Surprisingly, they don't. You know, it's been a, oh, my bad kind of response. We didn't realize what we're doing. And I would say, you know, like from a history perspective, the media is very powerful. We know that in socialist countries, for example, they program their communities based on the politics of one party and people have to listen in. They don't get, you know, the experience of being in an America where there are several political parties um, and people with various ideologies to lend and live under. But the media is powerful. And so seeing images and then with narrations and a narrative that is driven by a police perspective is causing the public to then again, believe the narrative of the police. And we're saying, sorry, that's a foul. That's that's wrong. And all we asked for was the video. Well, we're going to take a quick break. After the break, the news and more from Sonia Lewis of Sacramento for Black Lives. We'll be right back. You're listening to Our Truth Today with Farron DeBell on conversationswith.net. I know the consequences. Journalists imprisoned, books censored, films banned from theaters. These are normal in Iran where I'm from. Back home, these were our reality. This is why freedom of speech is so important to me. We must cherish it and never take it for granted. This message is brought to you by the NAB Education Foundation and the Broadcast Education Association. Our Truth Today. News. News. I'm Tyra Dion with Our Truth Today News. Chicago has taken action against four officers they say helped cover up the Laquan McDonald killing. 
In the aftermath, a police union spokesperson was talking to city council to defend the officers and newly elected mayor Lori Lightfoot was caught on a hot mic calling the representative an FOP clown. The four officers were fired. Earlier this month, protesters spoke out against the inland port plan for Salt Lake City that critics say will negatively affect marginalized groups, including disabled and indigenous people. About 50 protesters gathered around the public safety building this week to condemn what they called police brutality. Videos of the protest show both police officers and protesters throwing punches. Police Chief Mike Brown says his officer's behavior was exemplary. Utah Governor Gary Herbert said the protesters' actions was borderline terrorism. Police in Hollywood, Florida attacked a 15-year-old black boy who was doing wheelies on his bike on Hollywood Boulevard, according to Local 10. One car chased the boy and ran into his bicycle with the cruiser. After being thrown to the ground and detained, the boy was tased. A police spokesman said the tasing and takedown was in police protocol. The vehicles did not have dash cams running and the officers did not have body cams. The case of abuse is under review. The district attorney in Chattanooga, Tennessee has set up a hotline to report police brutality after several reports of police misconduct during routine detentions. July 11th, two white Hamilton County Sheriff's deputies were caught on video punching, kicking, and stripping the pants off of a handcuffed black man on whom they allegedly performed the roadside strip search. That's the news for Our Truth Today. I'm Tyra Dion. Today. News, entertainment, politics, health and well-being, social justice. Visit us online at OurTruth.Today and ConversationsWith.Net. And we're back on Our Truth Today. I'm your host, Farron DeBell, and I'm with Sonia Lewis of Sacramento for Black Lives. Welcome back, Sonia. Thank you. Chicago police found guilty several times over the years for wrongfully arresting citizens and forcing confessions and later covering up their crimes recently fired four officers for covering for the officer who killed Laquan McDonald. How do we get over the blue code that makes cops, no matter their race, cover for other officers when they know the officers are doing wrong? Ooh, that's such a a loaded question. I used to teach and be the lead instructor and program coordinator for a police academy at one of our local high schools. Its actual business partner was the Sacramento Police Department. My rationale for taking that position was I will be on the inside able to, one, influence students to maybe not necessarily go into a a career of policing, but to go into a career of law enforcement from other angles. It worked well for, for lots of years. I was able to be brought up to speed on the codes of conduct of police and things of that nature. Officers that I've talked to when we're talking about, yeah, I know officers such and such might be a bad apple, but there are lots of good apples in the bunch. I hear that. And and it's unfortunate that the the code is more important than the community. And I still keep in touch with a, a lot of officers, you know, outside of their uniforms. You know, we have this code with each other that, you know, as long as you're in your uniform, we know, you know, who we are to each other. But outside of that uniform, we will, we have lots of um, beautiful and colorful conversations about um, Black community building. But this code is one in which 
we have to break. And, and that's one I think that not just at the local PD level or at a county sheriff level, but we have to break that at a union level because they've gotten to a place where the code is more important than the community. And if we as taxpayers are paying our taxes, realize one important thing from a history perspective that taxation with representation is the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. We can no longer continue to live taxation without representation. That means that they'll take our money, but they won't represent us the same way that they'll represent a majority white neighborhood, a community like El Dorado Hills or a Beverly Hills or, you know, wherever there's not a lot of people of color. The unions are very powerful. There is a police um, bill of rights and that police bill of rights gives them coverage and kind of carte blanche to do whatever they deem necessary. So here in California, we had SB 1432, which gave the public now access to records. We just had 392 that was passed when it comes to police use of force. And so we're trying to make sure that we're pushing what it looks like to be community minding with respect to law enforcement. Great. Well, maybe you can answer this question then. When I was researching that issue a couple of years ago about the black boy in Lansing, Illinois, detained by the off-duty white police officer, I was wondering why the officer changed his story about why he tackled the boy, initially threatening to kill the boy for trespassing on his property, but later officially saying he detained the boy as part of an investigation related to a fight nearby. I read the union contract for the mm -hmm. local police force and found that if an officer commits a crime while conducting official business, whether he's on duty or not, he must have a legal defense paid for by the city. Is this type of provision common in union contracts? Absolutely. Very much common. They want to protect themselves on duty and off duty. Officers have to report certain things, whether they're in the line of duty or, or out of the line of duty. And so with law enforcement officers, it's a matter of making sure that they're protected 24-7 rather than just when they're on duty. Law enforcement officers have an extremely high rate of spousal abuse. Law enforcement officers experience high rates of depression and aggression. Law enforcement officers in general have high rates of road rage, DUI. So, so these are things in data that communities are beginning to look at and dissect. So it's smart for unions to try to come in on the backside and flip a narrative to say that this officer was working, right? Because we know where, where the protections lie. We know that not only are, is the family and the community then going to have to pay off a family, but that officer won't be on the hook individually. And it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that the code protects them in such a broad scope, whereas yeah. they know that there, there are bad apples out there and it would behoove them to remove bad apples if they want to have relations with communities and have trust be a, a factor and have bridges be built. Okay. Let's talk about your cousin, Stefan Clark. Okay. I'm sorry for you and your family's loss. Mm -hmm. Stefan was out on the night of March 18th last year. Police claim he was breaking windows on cars and on a patio door. They chased him with the help of a police helicopter. First, is this normal police procedure up to this point? I don't even care whether he broke a couple windows. Is it normal to have an air-assisted manhunt for petty crimes? You know, in this neighborhood of Meadowview, it is normal. What's unfortunate and what is not normal in this incident, and, and we've kind of been challenging the Sacramento Sheriff's Department with, is why wasn't there a light 
um, because we call we call the helicopters the dirty birds. Okay. When the dirty bird is out and it's nighttime, there's a big bright light that illuminates a neighborhood or a block or wherever that helicopter is shining. From. Okay. In that night in particular, the light wasn't on, so the helicopter officers were able to see Stefan from the air, but the officers on the ground were not able to see them. And there's this contentious relationship between SAC PD and SAC Sheriff Department. And I would just venture to just me speculating from the outside looking in because of that contention. SAC Sheriff doesn't always want to give its 100% when they're assisting um, other agencies in our area. Um, we have a, a very rogue Sheriff Scott Jones who thinks that he is above the law and that his agency is better than other agencies. And so they don't give 100% when they're assisting other agencies. So that's part of that scenario. Um, in this neighborhood, however, I will say that um, it is normal protocol for the helicopter to be out and chasing folks for petty crimes. And, and that's something that we have to look at and examine. In certain neighborhoods, why are why is life less important when it comes to property? Yeah, so Sacramento PD follows him into his grandmother's backyard, yells, show me your hands, gun, 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 and starts shooting him. He had a cell phone. What? What am I missing from the story so far? You're not missing anything. You're not missing anything. They shot him 20 times, strike him six times in the back, one black officer, one white officer. Is that accurate? Correct, yes. What were people in the community saying? Um, oh my goodness. So that night I'm from the Meadowview neighborhood. The house, the home where Stefan was um shot in is my uncle's home and he's been a resident of that home and neighborhood for over fifty years. And so first off, I just have to raise my hand and say to any law enforcement agency and any city official, what about people who've been in our neighborhood forever and you know who they are? and you still violate their home. Those two officers came on the scene. They emptied their clips. 20 shots were um, fired, striking Stefan and murdering him. Any of those bullets could have entered my uncle's bedroom because Stefan was right at his window, tapping on the window, asking my uncle to unlock the garage door. And my uncle's a quadriplegic. He, he cannot move around and get around for himself. Um, so any of those stray bullets could have entered a wall and taken his life. In the room adjacent to my uncle's bedroom, Stefan's younger sister, eight at the time, was sleeping on the couch. His grandmother was in the next room over. Any of those bullets could have taken their lives. If you look at the video, they knocked at the neighbor's door and they said, we're looking for a robbery suspect. Hey, do you mind if we check in your backyard? Right? And so there was some consideration to that property. When the officers came into my uncle's backyard, unfortunately, this is what we do know, that there are less lethal force that they can use and they had weapons in their vehicle that they could have retreated and gone back for. They could have also waited for backup. They could have also waited for canine. There were so many other ways that that incident could have been resolved but now we're you know a year and a half later and you have a da who sees nothing wrong with the excessive force and um, thank god we have representatives weber and mccarty here who represent us in the state capitol and they wrote this new bill 
SB 392 that's going to look at the use of excessive force, use of force, period, right? Because we know that our agencies are spending millions of dollars every year for the latest and greatest weaponry so that they are more militarized. Why can't they be trained on de-escalation? Why can't they be trained on community policing? Why can't they be trained on building bridges and getting to know the people in their neighborhood? Because there's no way that you can ever convince me. Chief Han, the mayor of Sacramento, neither of them could ever convince me that someone who's lived in their home for over 50 years and paid their taxes should not have that general respect. Well, you talked earlier about the militarization of the police force. It strikes me as a little odd because my cousin who served in Afghanistan used to complain that the army rules of engagement prevented them from firing on enemy combatants unless they were fired upon first. Absolutely. So we've got that rule for military with non-citizens, but police are allowed to fire upon people with little or no provocation. We've heard this. I've heard people in the military say that even though law enforcement in this country is mocking the impression of a military force in regards to the weapons that they are now using in communities. I I cannot get the images of Ferguson out of my mind when you had tanks in the middle of the street sieging on community members who are standing with their hands up saying, hands up, don't shoot, right? So that militarization, that image of it um, being one that we are in control and, and at the end of the day, that's what law enforcement is. It's about control. It's about how do we protect property? Unfortunately, the target is black bodies. So yes, I've heard military people say time and time again, we have to be shot upon before we are able to engage in certain military actions. And if they shoot first, not only are they court-martialed and they will, you know, it's a criminal charge, but they will be kicked out of the military with bad accommodations on their record. So if the military is able to weed out trigger-happy individuals who are scared because, you know, it's dangerous to be in war, absolutely. If the matter is, are we scared to be a police officer, then you shouldn't sign up for the job. Moving on to contemporary issues, there was a black celebrity photographer last year who told a story, most of which was caught on Facebook Live, about being harassed at a hotel in Atlanta, being wrongfully arrested, and watching a fellow inmate at Fulton County Jail be killed by guards on what guards called Taser Tuesday. The photographer pointed out yeah. that the abuses were perpetrated by an all-black guard staff. How do black and brown officers get pulled into this system that continues to disproportionately murder unarmed black people? Ooh, I love that question because it is one in which we've been having this conversation in regards to blue versus everyone else. It seems as though officers, regardless of their, their racial, ethnic background, feel protected or feel more empowered. And, and, and I relate it to the slave mentality, right? You had the house slave, you had the field slave, and to a certain degree, the house slave was given more freedom. And so officers, who are black and brown or who have come from um, communities that are poor even, are now given more freedoms to control people who even if they look like them, it's a matter of control. And so we see this time and time again, you know, Officer Terrence Mercado was the black officer who shot Stefan Clark 
it happens. It's not one of those things that they are thinking, oh, I'm black and the, and the suspect is black. They're thinking my blue uniform protects me right now in this moment as I'm working as an officer, I am blue. This goes even to the Blue Lives Movement, right? Which we have said is a racist statement to make because it's a clap back to black lives not mattering. It's a way for officers to get off the hook for murdering black and brown individuals at higher rates. And so because we know that blue lives don't exist, we want officers to think from a rationale of humanity that all lives matter, and that includes black and brown lives. Yeah, and interestingly, I haven't looked at the numbers on this, and I should do this, but anecdotally, it seems like most times when officers are held accountable for questionable shootings, it's a black or brown officer who takes the fall. Absolutely. We think about the officer. I want to say there was an officer. She was a lieutenant or a sergeant in Baltimore in the Freddie Gray incident. Right. She was held responsible because she was the, the upper level management officer to the officers who did the, the right around that ultimately killed Freddie Gray. Um, you think about the officer. Um, he was a black guy who murdered a white woman and going into do a check on her at her apartment. She ended up dead. He was found guilty. So, you know, we know that these things are happening, that black and brown officers are one having to think about where do they fit in in these scenarios and the equation of things. I was listening to a black officer, retired officer with the New York Police Department, and he was making the assertion that even when black and brown officers speak up against the atrocities that are happening because they see them, they then get blacklisted. I always share the story of my father. He's a Vietnam vet. And when he came back from Vietnam, one of the first and easy fit jobs that he was offered was with the police department. And in Richmond, California, he, one of my uncles and two of his buddies from Vietnam, they were the first four black officers who were hired with the Richmond Police Department. Richmond at that time had a high KKK population here or group that was very active in um, Northern California. And they were part of the police department and they were called the Richmond Knights. And their goal was to make sure that these four officers didn't last a year. My dad lasted about seven months on the force. Just mysterious things would happen like his police cruiser would be hit. He was called out to um, very dangerous situations in black neighborhoods that were gun shootouts and he refused to be the officer that was going to participate in shooting um, black citizens that he knew as his neighbors. He was also sent in to spy on um, the Black Panther Party during the 70s as a black officer, as a black community member. And when he would report back that they were doing nothing but feeding you know, the kids and coming up with after school programs, they saw that as um, being counterproductive to their goals. And he was ultimately released from his position. So I think that they have to tread a very thin line with how they respond to officers who are bad apples. Um, and internally, the fix isn't going to be on the inside. I think it's going to have to be on the outside with the community saying, no, we demand, we require 
that our tax dollars represent us in a way that is more equitable and humane. And recently we had a black sheriff's deputy in Columbus, Ohio, who was apparently on duty in full uniform, who had a white security guard at an IRS office pull a gun on him. Yes. This black officer, with an actual gun to his back, apparently did not fear for his life. He right. didn't kill the white security guard. He's suing him right. in civil court, but he didn't kill him. Why is an actual gun, when wielded by a white man, less jarring than a hairbrush or a cell phone held by a black man? It's very indicative of their training. And part of their training is that criminals are darker, menacing. You, you know, you think about the, the characters that we see in the movies. Um, we've been conditioned to believe that, you know, the, the villain is always in black or it's a black person. You know, those imagery, that imagery in and of itself, that's part of the conditioning of who we are as America. And so they don't see white men as threats. Whereas if it's a, a darker person, they have to be guilty. That's a conditioning. That's part of their training. And that's the piece that needs to change. That's the piece that needs to be addressed. And that's just not on the, the law enforcement side. That's at the criminal justice level. That's in the school system level. That's on our job is that when you talk about equity, when you talk about, you know, discrimination, the people who get the brunt uh, end of the stick or the people who are most disenfranchised are people who are of darker hue and have more melanin in their bodies. And so that's the part we have to look at is those implicit biases. We do a lot of know your rights trainings. We hold them in the parks and in communities where we have um, folks who just might be at the park, you know, smoking a blunt, listening to music, playing basketball, right? We want those individuals to know that if the police were to roll up on them, it, you, there are certain things that you legally have to answer and things that you don't have to answer. Common phrases that we want people to know and be aware of and be saying in that interaction is, am I being detained or am I being arrested? Because if I'm not being arrested, am I free to go, right? So repeating that over and over again. If an officer puts their hands on you or becomes physical with you, continue to say repeatedly, I am not resisting. I am not resisting. I am not resisting. Other things when it comes to search and seizure, we train people to say things like, if you don't have a warrant, you can't search my, my vehicle or my person. I would like to see the warrant. I would like to speak with an attorney. You don't have to give them your ID. You don't have to be this go-lucky person where everything is answered with yes, sir, no, sir. Um, you have the right to have an attitude things of that nature. There was a law passed recently, or at least a recognition of the, the expression F you, right? Um, and that officers cannot be offended when someone calls them a name or says something like F you. We try to teach people in the community in knowing your rights, you have rights, but also know that the cops are experts on violating your rights. And so even when it comes down to calling 911, I am an advocate for not calling 911. But if I were having a medical emergency at my home, for example, here in California, you can stipulate in that 911 call, I need a medic. I don't want police. And they have to honor and respect that. Only if the medics deem that there's a need for police assistance. Can they be involved in those type of incidences? But if you request that you don't want PD at your house because of a medical emergency, they have to respect that. 
we had a young man, a couple of, it is, it's really, I mean, and, and that's the kind of things that saves lives. We had a young man, Desmond Phillips, a couple of years ago, his dad moved him from the Sacramento area because he was experiencing PTSD after being beat by the Sacramento police department and then beat again at the county jail. And then come to find out he didn't commit a crime. They let him go. He never got charged with anything. His dad moves him up to this primarily white, but very rural neighborhood called Chico. And after that, he was, he experienced PTSD. He would have these mental episodes. And so his dad called for, called 911 because he was having an episode and PD showed up and he said, no, I want an ambulance. He needs medical. He needs to be taken to a psych ward. I don't want PD. PD ran into his home and shot his son right in his living room in front of himself and the young man's two nephews. And so that's the kind of lives we're trying to save. We're trying to prevent those kind of incidences from happening because we're also noticing not only are um, black and brown folks being the target, poor folks being the target, unhoused folks being the target, and people experiencing mental health crisis being the target. In knowing your rights, don't call the police on someone who's experiencing a mental episode on your block. There are resources that are out there that deal with and are experts with dealing with mental health issues. The police are not experts in that regard. Washington State this year, in a split Supreme Court decision, became the only state in the nation that upholds police in arresting and convicting citizens for refusing a warrantless search. So be careful there. You're talking about the Blue Lives Movement. Are there good cops out there? I say no. And and the reason I say no is that if you allow for black bad cops to be out there, then it takes away your right to even claim to be a good cop. I think that there are good people out there. I know for sure that the system of policing is not good. And so as long as the system is not good, it doesn't matter how many good people you put into it, the system's bad. So it's going to make the people bad because you're going to ignore when bad things happen. And so that's what I would say to, are there good cops? Hands down, no. You do presentations on these kinds of things for a living. How does your presentation change when talking to white people who seem to get it versus those who don't? There are groups of people. You, you're always, you're going to have a group of white folks who are just like, nope, this is the way it is and I'm stuck in my ways and we're going to be over here and we're going to be good. Then you have those white folks who are like, I do, I want to get it. And so I showed up. Then you have people in the room who fall into three other categories. Either they're an ally because they know that there's a problem and they're willing to maybe throw dollars at a campaign or an action or a group, or they might vote a certain way. Then you have comrades. Those are the people who might show up in the streets. They might join you in a march, especially they like to show up for things like MLK Day, Cesar Chavez Day, things of that nature, right? They show up because they, in their, in their consciousness, they want to say, I've done things to show my allegiance to communities that are more vulnerable. And then you have my favorite group of white folks, and that are my um, accomplices. Those are people who are willing to go to jail, who are willing to die for, put their bodies on the line for black folks. I try to identify who my allies, comrades, and accomplices are in the room. And I allow for them to help me do the heavy lifting with those people who are really on that cusp. And they don't know how to um, accept the fact that one, there's a problem, and two, how it challenges their white privilege and the comfortability that comes with white white privilege. Um, and so I, I I elicit people in those um, type of circumstances to 
help me do that heavy lifting. I come off with recognizing that I have some proximity to whiteness because I'm an educated black woman married who lives in a more fluent community. I recognize that I have and, and benefit from my proximity to whiteness. And so I take advantage of every person in the room who also recognizes that white privilege is a thing. And we have to make, if we want to challenge the system to bring equity for everyone, that they have to be the ones to challenge what racism looks like. They have to be the ones to challenge what implicit bias looks like or microaggressions. And they have to be the ones to say, stop my friend, this is not right. And it usually is a beautiful thing because it's not like this angry black woman coming off as an angry black woman. It's a community effort to build and teach and embrace perspectives that open up dialogue and conversations that are more healthy. Fascinating. Sonia, I really appreciate you being with us here today on Our Truth Today. Yes, I appreciate you for giving me a platform to speak and to share some things that are going on and things that we are working with here in um, California. You can learn more about any of the organizations we talked about in today's show on our website at OurTruth.Today. And you can get links on how to contact Sonia directly on our site. Just click on Current Shows and select Season 1, Episode 5. That's it for Our Truth Today. For Farron DeBell, Capri Fernandez, and Megan Rose, I'm Tyra Dion. Join the conversations online at ourtruth.today or conversationswith.net. Join us next week, same time, same day, 8 p.m. Eastern on Sundays. We put a lot of effort into each weekly episode of Our Truth Today. All we ask in return is like us on Facebook, follow us on social media, and give us a five-star review on your favorite podcast app. And tell a friend. Upcoming shows include Life After High School, University, Work, or Military. Also, Mental Health in Minority Communities and an Immigration Update. Opinions expressed on Our Truth Today are those of the guests and not necessarily those of the hosts, producers, advertisers, or contributors to Our Truth Today. If you have a show idea, email us at info at ourtruth.today.